Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mistake behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, we'll be speaking with Hala Taha, known as the Podcasting Princess. Hala is the host of Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one education podcast with over 2 million downloads. She's also the CEO of Yap Media, a full-service social media and podcast marketing agency for top podcasters, celebrities, and CEOs, which generated over $1 million in its first year. You've probably seen Hala on LinkedIn, where she's known as one of the top influencers on that platform, an accolade that landed her on the January 2021 cover of Podcast Magazine. Hala faced an emotional crisis when her biggest influence and supporter, her father, sadly passed away in 2020 due to COVID-19. This moment made Hala realize just how short our time on earth really is, and she turned that moment into her motivation to support others to fulfill their dreams. Hala, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining. Stephanie, I am so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to jump right into it. And I did a ton of my own personal research because I just have always found you so incredibly fascinating. But I want to start kind of from the beginning. So where did you grow up? And tell me about your family. So I grew up in New Jersey, watching New Jersey. It was a suburban town, quite an affluent town. My dad was a surgeon. And so it was a a really uh, white town, I would say. Lots of uh, white people. I was one of the only brown kids in school, quote unquote. And that was pretty interesting growing up, you know, being one of the most diverse people in the school, especially after 9-11. So that was a big turning point in my life. But in terms of growing up, had a great childhood. You know, I had an amazing dad. He was a great role model, worked really hard, came from nothing. My mom was very creative. And so I kind of got like my smarts from my dad. My mom was like an artist and painted. And so like learned a lot of my creativity from her and uh, have three siblings and just generally a a great childhood. I I don't have any complaints about that. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay, so... Talk to me really quick about the siblings. So you're there's four of you all together. Yes. Boys and girls. 
Yeah, so there are two older brothers, one older sister. I'm the baby. And uh, they're actually all doctors. So I'm the only non-doctor in the whole family. And I have cousins who live down the street who are basically like my extended family and, and almost like my siblings. They lived down the street my whole life. And three of them, and they're all doctors. So I was literally the only person out of seven siblings, essentially, that wasn't a yeah. doctor. <laughs> Wow. So, okay. So that's so interesting because that could be really, really good or really, really bad. As you know, you and I kind of bonded very closely at the very beginning because of the Middle Eastern background. And we know like about, you know, expectations from our families and, you know, what they're hoping for us and what they hope for for girls and what they hope for for boys. You doing this and going not a little bit, okay, completely out of what mom or dad or Nana or Baba or whatever would consider a professional career. Tell me how that happened. Yeah. So my parents and my family treated me like the black sheep. Let's fast forward to college. At one point, I got an internship at Hot 97. I was Angie Martinez's assistant. I was this glorified intern, essentially. And I wasn't even getting paid by the station, but I was a personality at the station and had key cards and met all the celebrities and was treated like a personality at the station, somebody who was being primed to essentially be the next Angie Martinez. To my parents, I was throwing my life away. (laughs) I dropped out of college temporarily to take this internship. I was working for free. I was making my money hosting parties and selling underground rapper showcases and selling tickets. And all my siblings were in med school or taking their boards or in rotation. And here I am. It's like every family party trying to explain what I do, trying to explain that it's really cool, that it's my dream. And my parents were like, can't you go to law school? <laughs> Can't you like, uh, could you go back to school? And and they were really disappointed that I, I had dropped out of school. And while I think my dad was supportive, like my dad always like kind of felt like I was his little star and I had a lot of potential to be that star. And he'd always tell me like, oh, I'm going to see you on TV. He always wanted me to be like a news reporter. So this was right up his alley. He was like, you keep doing what you're doing. Like you're doing great. But everybody else in my family was like really worried about me and thought that I was going to be a failure. Right, right. And and probably very horrified again, going back to the Middle Eastern culture also too, for finding that kind of that special someone like, how are we going to market you, Hala? Like, what are we going to exactly, say? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I was also, something that's interesting about me is like, I felt like for a long time, I didn't really fit into either community. Like I was too Arabic for the white kids at school and I was too American for all the Arabs in New Jersey, right? And to a, a point where I was being like, bullied by the Arabic community at one point, especially in college, because I was very like dressed however I wanted, went to parties, was drinking, was being a normal college girl. But for the Arab community, I was like a bad girl. I was a bad girl. So I had best friends growing up who got married really young. And like, I wasn't allowed to be in their wedding, even though we were best friends. Like their moms wouldn't want me in the wedding because I was like a bad image at the time, which fast forward to today. Now everyone's like kind of sucking my, you know what, because they're like, oh my gosh, you're doing so well. Like, congratulations. We're so proud of you. I'm like, oh, now you're proud of me. Yeah, (laughs) The whole way up, you guys were bullying me, but now you're proud, you know? Yeah, now you're like hashtag Hala. And it's like, you are not doing that. The same girls that like didn't invite me to their wedding are like, Oh. oh my God. 
gosh, I, let's hang out. <laughs> no, thank so, you. <laughs> so let's actually touch on that for a second. So growing up, I felt very similar to that. I had a very different upbringing. So I didn't find out about my father until I was much older. I thought somebody else was my father, which is very well known, very well publicized. I moved into a very, very strict Middle Eastern family at, at, in teenage years. And just normal things, you know, I would see a boy at a mall and I'd be like, oh, hey. And they were like, oh, and I mean, just horrified. How was it for you growing up? Like, really, how was it? Like, how was prom? How was boys? How was communication? So I had a boyfriend since I was 13, probably was like my first boyfriend. But my I had to be so secretive. My parents never knew I had a boyfriend. I had a very serious boyfriend by the time I was 16. And I used to go over his house and, and like, you know, sneak out. I would tell my friend, like, hey, mom, I'm going to hang out with Lauren. And, like, my friend would pick me up and then drop me off at my boyfriend's house. Like, And you had that text going, going, hey, if my mom calls, exactly, call me here. Exactly. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll drop you off at your, your boyfriend's. You drop me off at mine. And so we were just, like, playing the game because both of our, like, I happened to have a couple friends who had immigrant parents. Like, all the immigrants in school kind of flocked together. And then, you know, we would just have each other's backs. And it, and it sucks looking back thinking that I had to lie to my parents and that they couldn't just, like, accept me. Because now they're super cool with all that stuff because they realized that like they brought us to America for a long time. My parents really wanted us to like only date Arabic people, only marry a Muslim person, only stay within your culture, like no dating. Like it was unrealistic. Now all of like, remember I was starting off with, I had like basically like seven siblings outside of myself, like that were in our extended family. Almost everybody married a non-Arab, non-Muslim in our whole family because we're just, and and our family out of all the community, we're like way more Americanized than everybody else because the kids for some reason all dated and, and just became American where a lot of our community in New Jersey only date Arabic people, only like get married really young. It's Muslim and Muslim and that's it. At some point, there was some diversion in my family where it became accepted. But in the beginning, they were really trying to make it like, oh, we only want you guys to date Arabs and, and not date and then just get married. And it didn't work. It's not realistic. It's not realistic. That's, I mean, again, going back to my story as well, you know, I had the same exact thing. Mine was a little worse because my father had drowned and he was the oldest Middle Eastern son and I was his only child. So the line of arranged, let's get this arranged immediately. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to go to college. Like, I'm not trying to have 17 kids. Like, I'm not trying to do all that. And so, unfortunately, because like you said, there was so much social pressure, I didn't make it like you did. I married a white unemployed construction worker and literally like got married, had a baby and got a divorce. Like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, pressure's off once you have a kid. You know, they're like, oh, God, just go somewhere. <laughs> Who's touch you with a, nobody <laughs> wants to touch you with a 10-foot pole now. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I swear, Holly, Holly, I would show up. I was 106 pounds, and I would show up at my grandparents' house. I had driven three hours so they could see the baby, and I walked in. I was like 106 pounds. I'd worked 90 hours that week, and I'm like, Baba. And he's like, oh, you're getting so fat. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. See you again. <laughs> Right. He's like, so now a kid and you're fat. He's like, I mean, at least you can cook. You want to know something that's really interesting that like you're asking amazing questions, by the way. Great job. One thing that backfired, I think, with my parents not allowing me to date is that I ended up dating really controlling boys. Because 
because my parents weren't involved and I had to be secretive, these boys had a lot of control over me. They could threaten me. I'm going to tell your parents. I'm going to, if you want to break up with me, I'm going to tell your parents that you did X, Y, Z and you're going to get into, I'm going to tell your brother, right? So I, I was like in a really controlling relationship from like 16 to 20. And then like that pattern of being with controlling men. And it's all because like, I just couldn't be open and honest with my parents when I was younger. And looking back, like I will never do that to my children because it's like almost like you don't teach them what a healthy relationship is like. You teach them that being secretive and being in love is bad and having a relationship is bad. It really can mess your kids up. So I think that a lot of immigrant children probably deal with that kind of a thing because they're they're just not able to be transparent and they don't have that protection. If if you, the boy knows your parents, they know that they can't get away with like certain things. So I think that that's something like I never really thought about that, but you made me realize that. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I know that, you know, I, I know we've talked about this a lot, but I know you hear me say, you know, your example can be got like, like your father. Gosh, I, I just loved so many things about him. I want to emulate all of this. Okay. Or somebody who's not such a positive example in your life. And you're like, I want to be nothing like this. So for me and my kids, I didn't want to be anything like I mean, we were talking about sex at nine. We were talking about um, we were talking about great relationships and toxicity and positivity and communication and communication styles. I mean, so much so like the girls would literally bear the, bury their head um, because they were just like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And but it did, Hala. It did when they started to get into a relationship, whether it be a girlfriend, like a, a friend, or or an opposite sex relationship. They started to feel when they were being controlled, or they started feeling, and they would say something. They would, you know, kind of hit the signal early. So you're completely right. I think that's amazing that that you actually know that now, and I think that's incredible. Yeah, one hundred percent. So we were, I, I want to just kind of talk about your dad for a second. I know that he was such an intricate part of your life. Tell me about him. Tell me about what happened and tell me about how you want his legacy to be remembered. Sure. So my dad, I feel like was like a really special kind of person. My dad was like a doctor's doctor, right? He lived, breathed, everything he cared about was just saving people's lives. So my dad grew up in Palestine super poor, grew up in one room with probably 10 people, never had like meat, ate figs and dates and pita bread for his whole life. You know, he lived on a farm and they had no electricity. And the way that he knew that he could get out of the situation, first of all, he was in Palestine. So it was war stricken. He wasn't in Gaza, but he was still, you know, occupied territories, very hard to get out and, and, have a career or do anything substantial in those situations. And he knew the only way out was through school. He was like, there was a program in Egypt where they were giving uh, scholarships to college and then medical school if you did well. So his whole goal from when he was a kid was like, I'm going to be number one in school. I'm going to be the smartest one in school. So that's all he focused on. And his only light to study was on his walk to school. That was the only time. So he would read his books and walk like miles to school and he did great. Like he was number one in his class, like his whole life basically. And then he got a scholarship, went to medical school, came to America, became a surgeon and opened up a medical center. He was very successful chief of surgery in multiple hospitals and basically built this beautiful life. He went from nothing to being very, very successful and the most successful person in his family. But he wasn't a flashy guy. The guy 
shopped at Sears. Like he 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 did not care. He had no fancy watches. Like his one, he did buy a Porsche at one point in his life. But other than that, he was not flashy. You know, he that was like his one thing that he ever did. But he put all my nieces and nephews in Palestine through school. So any of my family that didn't end up coming to America and bettering themselves in that way, he put all their kids through school. So at least six people, some of them to even grad school. And so basically brought out my whole family out of poverty because once their kids started working, they were able to make money and be fine. And he would help my family and send them money and all that kind of stuff. And so that was a really big impact on me. And he would go there and, and, and go to refugee camps and, and really just help in, in many different ways. And he would just fundraise all the time for Palestine. And so he was just this really generous guy, this really like community guy, a leader. And then, like I said, was so passionate about his craft as a doctor. All he would do is just study and experiment and try to save people's lives and, re- and write books And I saw that growing up and that dedication. And I feel like all that is really instilled in me. Like I'm a super hard worker. And I know that's definitely from my dad and like the way he acted. And then also he was just such a nice guy. My dad's the type of guy that like, if I had a friend that that they weren't rich and we were going to the mall, my dad would sneak them like a hundred bucks and be like, "Go have fun." It like you know like what I mean? My grandfather. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. that's the kind of and like all my friends will tell me these stories. Like you know, I never told you, but your dad gave me money when we were kids, and I really always looked up to him like for doing that. For you know what I mean? And so I hear these stories. My my brother's a doctor, and he had a patient that came in and found out that my dad had passed away. And he started crying and he's like, you know, my dad. And he was like, yeah, I was, I needed to go to flight school and I needed a plane ticket somewhere. And your dad bought me the plane ticket. Like, you know, and it's just like, we're finding out these stories like, wow, like I didn't even know dad did that. You know what I mean? So he was just so generous and like really just all his like main mission in life. Cause the way he got out of poverty was education. So his big thing was like, I want to make sure people go to school and can be successful. Like that was his whole thing. So I looked up to him in that way. The other big thing that my dad taught me was like generosity with his employees and stuff. My dad was just so nice to his employees, always giving them cash, always giving them promotions. Literally at one point when he was older, he was only working so that like people had jobs, you know, like that was his personality. And he worked until the day he died, until he got COVID. So we can... (laughs) Go to that. Uh, so Yeah, let's go to that. Yeah, let's go to that. <laughs> so uh, March 2020, I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And I was uh, living with my boyfriend in Brooklyn. And it was lockdown right when COVID happened. Being super safe. I was one of the first people to wear masks on the subway. I was, you know, looked like I was entering a war zone going to the grocery store. I was so paranoid about getting sick. And then I get a call from my sister. And my sister's like, Hala, mom, dad, your uncle, your aunt, and your brother have COVID. Are you going to come home with me? I, I didn't have a car at the time. I was in Brooklyn. Are you going to come home? I'm going to pick you up. You have two hours to pack your sh-. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, of course, I'm going to go home. Everybody, And so in two hours, I had to decide if I was going to willingly go get COVID, essentially. So I packed up my stuff. Little did I know it'd be three months until I went back to Brooklyn. And so my sister drove me to Jersey. We got into the house. We have masks on, goggles. We're both wearing like plastic, because uh, my sister's a doctor. So we had like the whole gear Cosmat. on. Because we, yeah, we didn't thing. know what we, we, I was like, I'm literally walking in to die. Like what is, like, I did not know what to expect. So, and this was in the beginning where nobody knew anything. This was like, we were one of the first families impacted. 
like probably like the first like 30 families in New Jersey who got sick, literally. So, and it's because my family's in the medical field. Right, exactly. So that's why everybody's a doctor. So it's like, of course, everybody got it right away, right? So I come home and my house usually smells great. Smells like food, smells like flowers. I come home and I'm like, oh my God, it smells like sick. And I have a mask on and I can smell it. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get so sick. And so my dad at the time, he was older. My mom's really healthy. My dad had diabetes. He was going through health problems already. So we were really like focused on my dad. My brother's like young, fit, whatever. We're like, spend for yourself. Right. (laughs) My dad was like the main thing that we were like, (laughs) we need to help you, man. So we get there. My sister's a doctor and... So I'm like, okay, you be the doctor. And I went from like Disney executive, top podcaster to like janitor really quick. (laughs) And so my job was just at the time, we thought that you just had to like, we were spraying alcohol everywhere, just spraying the floor, spraying the curtains, just doing anything to try to like reduce COVID in the house. And I had to sleep in the basement and we had no preparation. So it's like, we were just sleeping on the couch, no blankets, like nothing. I had like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every night at like midnight. Cause I'd be upstairs helping everybody who was sick, making food, whatever, too scared to eat. Cause at this point I was like, I don't want to get COVID. So I was still trying my best not to get COVID. Then my dad just started to deteriorate. He was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. We got an oxygen machine. It wasn't enough. He was, and at a certain point, me and my sister were like, we have COVID. There's no way we don't have COVID. So then we just started like just being by his side 24 hours and just doing anything we could. We were like just hoping and wishing he wouldn't go to the hospital because there was no visiting rights in the hospital. My dad was losing his eyesight so he could barely see. He wasn't talking. So I was just like, if you go to the hospital, like it's gonna be so hard to communicate with you. You can't even see. My mom did everything with him and we were just trying to avoid that. And my brother's doctor, my sister's doctor and my uncle. And so we were like, maybe we can figure this out on our own. One thing led to another, we had to call the ambulance. My dad, last thing he said to me, to us was like, if I go, you guys are never gonna see me again. He did not wanna go. And then we were like, well, you're either gonna die right now or we're gonna try to save you in the hospital. So you have to go to the hospital. And so that was the last time we saw him alive. I saw him on the Zoom calls. We weren't allowed to, like, I bought the nurses and doctors either lunch or breakfast every morning So because they were being so mean about us doing the Zoom calls. They were so overwhelmed themselves. And looking back, it's like, I understand. They were really, it was like a point in time where so many people were sick. Nobody knew what to do. They looked at my dad like, who cares? This is a 70 plus year old man. We need to save the 40 year old. So they were like deprioritizing my dad. And I wanted to be like, do you know how many f-ing people my dad has saved? Like you got to prioritize him. He's paid his dues. You, you know what I mean? But whatever, like they, you know, they don't weigh it that way. They weigh it by like, okay, the 40 year old has a better chance of living. Let's, they tried to say that my dad, like my dad needed a ventilator. They tried to say they didn't have any, like there was just so many issues in that way that we were like just fighting and and vouching for him. But at the end of the day, like I said, my dad couldn't see. He was on Zoom. So what did I do? As I was working at Disney at the time, working remotely, I'd be doing my day job. My dad would be on Zoom next to me as often as possible. I'd sing to him. I'd try to talk to him. He couldn't, he was just unresponsive most of the time when he was in the hospital, just totally unresponsive. He stayed in the hospital for over a month And he passed away May 15th. So it's like, um, it was like so traumatizing. I had over a month of basically just watching my dad die on Zoom. And, And they would not let us go to the hospital. They only let us go to the hospital 
to see him after he's died. So one of the most traumatic things for me out of all of this, and I'm sure so many people who've been through this can relate when it comes to COVID, is like the fact that I couldn't like hold his hand or make him feel okay or just sleep it there. And it was so frustrating because it's like I had already had COVID. And I was like, just let me go be with my dad. You're like, let me sign a waiver. Let me do whatever I I need to do. And the nurses were scared. So it's like, this guy like was such a generous, loving man. And then he was so alone the last two months of his life. And to me, it makes me sick. The things that make me upset, I feel like he had a beautiful life. He had a beautiful family. He did amazing things. He has a great legacy. The thing that hurts me the most is that like the last two months of his life had to be that lonely and it's so unfair. And I think about it and I'm like, God, like that's my biggest regret of my life is like, I wish he died at home. I wish we never sent him away and that he just died at home, even if it meant we didn't know. But it's like looking back, it's like, man, it would have been so much better if he just died at home. Well, for sure, because uh, this person who's like an an absolute instrumental pillar in so many people's life, who's not only like I want to point out, you know, while he's generous with finances, he's also generous with his time and listening and paying attention and and actually connecting. And then somebody like that passes away and is alone for two months with with such successful children and such a beautiful wife and such a beautiful family. And then you you pass away alone. It made me feel like, is there a God? Like, is there like, is it like, how is this? How does that happen? Somebody who's spent his whole life doing like the guy was like, so innocent in the way that like, he had no bad bone in his body. Like I had a really innocent, good father. Because he was like, grew up like a farmer's boy. So it's almost like he didn't know any better. You know, he never drank. He never did anything bad, literally. And so like, it just makes me sick. Like, how could somebody so good have such a bad ending? But it is what it is. You know, I I try to just remember the good times. How's your mom? She's okay. You know, she's a really strong lady. So she's holding up. And I've been spending a lot of time with her. It helps that like, she's got good kids that spend a lot of time with her. And so she's holding up. So I want to go back really quick because you said something that triggered my thought process. So talk to me about the phone call or the conversation with the boyfriend that you're going to go intentionally get COVID and be gone for three months. Well, he was with me. Oh, he went with you? (laughs) No, no, no. He was, he was in the apartment with me when I got the call and his perspective was like, you got to go help your family. So he was all for it. But I mean, we're broken up now. And I think that was like the first downfall of our relationship because we didn't see each other for three months after that. And when I got COVID, actually, this was a huge turning point in my life. So I got COVID at a time when nobody else got COVID. So all my best friends didn't want to see me. They were scared to hang out with me. Nobody came to my dad's funeral. Nobody came over to say sorry. So it's like, I had situations where people had died in my friends' families and I was so there for them and whatever. I felt very abandoned by a lot of people in my life at that time. And I understand like COVID is scary, right? But it's like very isolated, you know what I mean? Three months. But the the silver lining in all of this is that I had a lot of time. And what did I do? I started a business. I started Yap Media while my dad was in the hospital. And it's because my friends wouldn't hang out with me. My boyfriend was scared of hanging out with me. I was stuck at my parents' house. I had no commute because Disney was working remotely. So I started a freaking company. And here we are, 63 employees later, and you're one of my clients. (laughs) I I, I mean, that's so, it's actually really interesting because when I was quickly kind of putting together like a little outline, I was like, and then I care about this. And then I care about this. And like, literally, naturally, you're like, oh, and then Yap. And I'm like, oh, Yap is next. Before we go into Yap, 
So this is really important, okay, Hala? Because here's the thing. I didn't know about podcasting very much until until really you. The podcasters I knew were kind of like nothing I had anything in common with, like uh, like Joe Rogan or like a, a highly political show, like, you know, those type of things. And then when I met you and, and we were talking about doing the podcast, you brought so much light and so much attention into – how different it could be and how I I kept saying to you, I don't want to be part of the noise. Like, I just don't care about the noise. And you were so eloquent in finding my voice, okay? But what got you interested in podcasting? How did you go that route and then ultimately decide, I'm going to do this the absolute best, become the podcast princess, crush it, and then start a media company? So funny, I feel like I've been podcasting before podcasting was a word. So that's why I feel like I'm so knowledgeable is because I've been doing this before it was, Yap is my fifth show. I worked at Hot 97 when I was 19. While I was working at Hot 97, I used to work on this, it was called online radio shows. Basically what it was, it was a studio you would go to and they would live stream it on a website. And that was the precursor to podcasts. So it's a studio you would go to. They would live stream it on a website. It would live on a website. It would be video. They would live on a website. And you would go on social media and you'd say, join me, DTFradio.com. I'm going to be on there Saturdays, 10 a.m. Like, watch me live, call in, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I started doing that from 19. And I did that all throughout my 20s. You know, I was on A-list radio, bottom music radio, uh, DTFradio.net. Those were the three main ones. I probably had one or two shows on each one. I had a website called The Sorority of Hip Hop, which was a a blog site, which also gave me a lot of chops in this space, Uh, learning how to grow social media profiles, learning how to build websites, learning how to run teams. And while I was at Hot 97, it's like I honed all my broadcasting skills. I was running the Dillette boards, which basically controls the commercials, the music. It's a big deal. You know how many times my heart stopped when like the music stopped and I'm like, oh my God, millions of people have no music right now. And I'd be like running like, what the happened like you know so it was, it was like you really learned stuff and then on the spot I learned how to audio edit really quickly because Angie would do an interview and then I have to go in and quickly edit it and get it up in 20 minutes like you know what I mean it would just be like a like right before you would just edit it and then it would go live on the radio you have like maybe 10 minutes buffer time so I got really good at audio editing I used to do all the research for Angie And then I had my own shows on the side, like I said. So I had a lot of prep. I had a lot of reps. I had a YouTube show. I had a Facebook show. I like just had a lot of experience. Then by the time, so then podcasting really started to grow when I had exited the entertainment industry. So we didn't get into this, but if you guys are interested, I have a million interviews on these things. Stephanie is doing a great job not talking about the same stuff, but like I almost got a dream job at Hot 97. I was literally going to be the next Angel Martinez. They fired me. I didn't get the job. I had MTV film me for an entire summer. I was going to be the next Snooki, next Jersey Shore. They pulled the plug after they filmed us all summer. And I was literally the lead and the star of the show that was very extravagant that they filmed all summer. So two really bad things happened to me after paying my dues in the entertainment industry for about six years. I pulled out and I was like, forget it. I'm just going to be normal. This is not for me. uh, My parents hate me. Uh, My family, I'm the black sheep. Everybody's a doctor. I'm a failure. I need to just go to school and get a marketing degree and just do that and be normal. So I worked at Hewlett Packard for four years. And I was just a normal corporate girl. I just, I I literally went from like 
hosting the number one parties, like dating Chris Brown, doing all these crazy things, interviewing Fabulous and Soldier Boy to then like working like at Hewlett Packard Financial Services and marketing. It was like a total 360, but I did really well. And I got promoted like five times in four years and I made my first six figures and I was finally successful and my parents were happy. And then I was like, but I'm bored. This sucks. This isn't me. I have money, but I'm not happy. Right. I'm doing leadership things, but it's, I don't own it. Right. Right. And you can't go from like a, I mean, I, I, HP was a client. Like you can't go from an HP kind of corporate executive where everything's kind of planned out for you and your calendars and here's your meetings and here's your minutes and everything else. Your, your spirit is too big for that. You're just, it's way too big. Your head is way too big for that. Yeah. So there was this big turning point. So like I was literally the face of the young employees at Hewlett Packard. Like I was the president of their young employee network for two years. I started this thing called HPE Spirit Week across the whole company. It was a week-long event that they still do to this day where I was emailing the entire company of 300,000 people. Everybody knew who I was. I was the girl interviewing the CEO and the CMO on the internal events. I was like the face of the young employees. And I was supposed to be the president of the Global Young Employee Network. That was my goal. I had earned it. I had all the, I had done everything I was supposed to do. I was next in line. The HR director, who later quit a month later, she quit a month later. She didn't pick me. She picked somebody who had no experience. And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to call it Young and Profiting. I think I got the Young Young Employee Network, Young and Profiting, right? Uh, So they gave me one thing. And I decided that, you know what? I want to own something. All this time, I've been waiting for the gatekeepers to tell me yes. I I was waiting for Angie to hire me. I was waiting for MTV to put me on a show. I was waiting for HP to make me this role that I wanted to be so bad. And then I was like, I'll just do it on my own. Now I can do it on my own. Podcast is something I know how to do. I know how to audio edit. I know how to research. I know everything about this. I had never even listened to a podcast before I started my podcast. If you listen to my episode one and two and three, they're freaking masterpieces, masterpieces. And I had fans from the start. I had fanatics. By episode two, I had my first volunteer, Tim, who's my business partner. By episode eight, I had 10 volunteers in a Slack channel. All people who just reached out to me, like one guy from Estonia, I'm obsessed with your show. I build websites. You don't have a website. Can I build you a website? Then I had somebody from Atlanta. Oh my gosh, I'm a video editor. I'm obsessed with your show. Can I do your videos? Right? So I just started building this little team in Slack. And then I grew my LinkedIn following and one thing led to another. And I, my show just blew up two years later on the cover of podcast magazine. And here we are. That's incredible. So let's go back for a second. So you grew so incredibly fast. And sometimes that happens, okay? You just grow, whether it be luck, whether it be resources, whatever it is, okay? What was different about your show? I haven't, I don't, I don't have a ton of podcasting experience. You're like my prime link. What was different? I get on this, I listen to podcasts. I think I've listened to three or four now and I listen and I'm like, ah, what was so different about your show from the very beginning, from those one, two, and three masterpieces? Tell me what made it pop. I think it's the effort that I put in it and my genuine intention. So when I started a podcast, I literally thought that I would never make money off of it. I was like, this is a hobby. I tried to make money in this before, never worked. I'm making six figures plus doing my corporate job. I'm good. I don't need money. This is my way to give back. 
again, it's like this mentality of my father, like give back, give back, give back. Right. So it's like, okay, this is my service. Right. All my volunteers didn't care about getting paid because I wasn't getting paid. They felt aligned with the mission. The mission is to help people be more financially and professionally profitable in their lives. And people really resonated with that. And so I think that my pure intentions really, really attracted people. Then I also think like I did an incredible amount of research. I had no course. I didn't learn anything from anyone. I learned it all on my own. And I thought, well, I'm not going to waste these amazing people's time. So I would study like literally 20 hours a week. All I cared about was preparing for my interviews. I would listen to every interview. I would read their books. I would do anything. And then the guests would come on and be like, Hala, like you're a new podcaster, but this is the best interview I've ever been on. Like what people say to you, you know, this is the best thing I've ever been on. Like, you know me better than I know myself or like people would be shocked. And the people listening were really into it because they're like, wow, this is like way deeper than other things that are out there. And it's because I didn't try to mimic like, oh, I want to be just like this person. Let me do it just like them. I did it the way that I thought it should be done, which is if I'm going to invite these super successful people, then I need to make sure I know my stuff. And luckily, I had a really cool background. So from the start, my favorite author was on episode number one, Dr. Jack Schaefer. He wrote The Like Switch. And it's because I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I've read your book 20 times. I've never done podcasts, but this is not my first rodeo. I worked at the radio station. I I had a website. I almost was on MTV. Like, give me a shot. Like, you know, maybe I'll be good one day. Now he's come back and on and on and he's reaping the benefits. I'm getting him on Jordan Harbinger show and all these things because he helped me out. So it's like now all the guests that came on my show early on, I'm bringing them on again now that I have like hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And it's just so cool. It's so cool to give back to the people who supported you in the beginning. That's one of my favorite things right now. So there's three things that got me incredibly hooked on you, okay? The number one thing is you were super open. If you didn't know, you were like, hmm, I don't know. Let me get back to you. And I was like, what? That, like, I mean, no offense, no offense, okay? It doesn't really happen with the 30-somethings or the 20-somethings. Usually they know everything, and you're like, yeah, I don't know. And I was like, my God, did she just say that? Like, that was crazy. That was number one. Number two, if I emailed you at 5.30 in the morning, you answered. If I emailed you at 11 o'clock at night, you answered. (laughs) Your work ethic was second to none, okay? What, in growing Yap and where you are now, what is your perfect avatar? So you don't have any openings at Yap at all, and you go into Starbucks, and you're there, and you meet who? What does this person act like? What is their attitude like to create a position for this person at Yap? Like an employee? Yeah. Oh, so we have a we have our four H's. And I stole this from Brian Scudamore, who is one of my clients because I loved it so much. Happy, hungry, hardworking, and hands-on. That is who I look for in an employee. Happy, hungry, hardworking, and hands-on. All about the attitude. I literally will hire people for attitude. And it's actually bad because sometimes I do a bad judgment call, but sometimes they're really good, right? And so I'm willing to take that risk. If I see somebody who's really enthusiastic, I'm like really sold on it because I know that enthusiasm is half the battle. I can teach anybody anything, most likely. You know, there's certain things that are really hard to teach, like copywriting is really hard to teach someone, but most everything can be trained if you have the right attitude. 
They have to be hardworking. They can't be lazy. They have to be hands-on, willing to get their hands dirty. Even if they're like a strategist, you have to be willing to be hands-on. And then uh, hungry. So like being motivated, looking for gaps, looking for solutions, being a problem solver. Like those are all things that I really, really value in an employee. And something else that I'll say is that I've had a lot of success moving people around. So like, for example, let's say I hire somebody for attitude. And I'll give you an example. I have this employee. Her name is Critty. She's literally one of my favorite employees. She's so good. Okay. She started as a copywriter and she was so enthusiastic. She was so helpful, but she wasn't good at copywriting. She went to school for that. And I was like, you know what? How about you start being my assistant? How about you move into operations? A year later, she's the operations director and she's leading 30 people and she's a freaking rock star. Had I let her go, that would have been a huge detriment to my business. And so I'm also really good at like taking people and being like, okay, I'm going to move you here and this is your second shot. And a lot of the times they really flourish in their second role. And so I also feel like you have to be open to letting people thrive where they excel and not just judging people because, oh, your copywriting sucks. Now Critty's an amazing, now her, her, she's great now in terms of her copywriting because she had all this exposure and all this stuff. Not that she does that as her job, but she she's has perfect English now. You know what I mean? So it's just interesting that you can move people around and then they can really excel when they're in the right role. And I think people really get that wrong sometimes. They're quick to fire when it's like, you could maybe just give them a two-week shot at something else and save yourself the pain of having to go through hiring all over again. So I think that that's so incredibly valuable. As you know, before SME, I actually ran a global consulting firm. And there were so many times where I did that. And let me tell you, it backfired a couple times, but as a whole, it didn't. As a whole, it was not only appreciated, but people would say, hey, how did you know to move them into this spot? I think you do that so incredibly well with your team in giving them so much autonomy to actually reach where they're supposed to be. Now, conversely, there also are people, we go back to attitude, where they don't have the attitude to get moved. How do you handle that? If you have a poor attitude and you're not performing in your role— you're out. (laughs) So that's why attitude is really good too, because it's like attitude will give you a second chance. You know what I mean? Just having a positive attitude because we, it's really hard to let somebody go when you're like, man, they're, they're so enthusiastic. They're so helpful. It's so hard to let somebody go who's enthusiastic and helpful. Like you really have to do something bad for me to want to let you go. It's like, I try to give you as much chances as I can. And then if it's really not going to work out, it's in everyone's best interest for me to help you get a different job that you might be good at, you know? But I really, really try to give people those second chances. And then it's like after the second chance, maybe the third chance, if it doesn't work out, then yeah, you got to go. But I think giving people the chance to thrive in their role is, is so important. Tell me the, I'm going to ask you two things. Tell me the worst career choice you've ever made, whether it be within the career or, or something that you've done and the best career choice that you've done. Oh my gosh. Worst career choice and best career choice. I think probably the worst was interning at Hot 97 for three years for free. I think I was enjoying the three years, three years for free, Stephanie, three years for free. Well, they thought I was like this, you know, surgeon's daughter. Nobody needs to pay Hala. She's good. Like, oh my, my poor dad was footing the bill. Yeah, my poor dad was footing the bill while I was working at Han and Seven. I mean, I made money in showcases and after, but like they really took advantage of the fact that they knew that like at the end of the day, I would be taken care of. 
And so I think that was my worst decision. I think I could have maybe did that for a year or figured out a way to actually have a paying job or maybe, I don't know, played the game a little better where they felt like they had to pay me. I don't know. I I, I made some mistakes. I was young, but I don't regret it because I, I did get really valuable experience and connections. So that was probably the worst choice that I ever made. Another another interesting one is that there was a point when I was getting filmed for MTV, I had the choice to be on Love and Hip Hop or have my own MTV show. That was my choice. I had Mona Scott calling me up. Hala, I want you to be on the next season of, of Love and Hip Hop. Only caveat is you can't go back to school. And then I had MTV saying, Hala, I want to make you the star of your own show. And I was like, all right, I'll be the star and stay in school. And then I didn't get either. So <laughs> that was probably a bad decision too. But at the end of the day, I'm happy that I, I didn't like make a fool of myself when, in my 20s on reality TV at the end of the day, because now I have a very wholesome, great brand. I have Olay, ZipRecruiter, Fiverr sponsoring me. I don't think that would be the case if I was uh, Snooky or something along the lines. Probably so, not Snooky. Yeah, that probably, probably would not have worked out. I mean, so that's why like every like, it's hard to say the worst move because my journey is what brought me to who I am today, right? So it's hard to say that. My best career move was taking the jump into entrepreneurship and, and really going 100% into the podcast and Yap Media. I had a lot of people telling me not to do it. And I feel like it's sky's the limit. I really feel that way. I feel in two years, I'll probably have a thousand people working for me like easily, you know? And it, so it's just, I, I think everything's accelerating so fast. It's It's in a crazy time period right now, as you know, as my client that like we grew so fast that like, I'm like, it's all about operations and processes and, and project management systems. Because before we were so small that like we could get away with like talking on Slack and, and having meetings. Now it's so big that we really need to like have capacity planning and all these formal things that I used to do at Disney and HP now need to be brought into the company to make sure we can scale efficiently. So I'm at like, you know, I'm in a really busy part of my life where I'm literally working from 9 a.m. to midnight every single day. So hopefully this moves out soon. But yeah, it's it's exciting and nonetheless. So it's actually interesting how your journey plays back because you're like, what am I doing at HP? What am I doing at Disney? Like, I'm bored, I'm bored. But you were actually, without even knowing, attaining those skill sets that you are going to need for capacity planning and for and for all of those different type of things that are really happening. One of the things I want to touch base on is when you were saying, you know, hey, project planning and operations and everything else, I think one of the most important things with that is, is using the same dictionary. So you might have all of these things in your head. You might have project management in your head and you hire for project management, but that project manager maybe doesn't understand the way you like things managed or the way that you communicate or the way that you, what time response is to you. And so people say things, and I know for me in, in growing a global company, I know that people say things to me like a response time in 24 hours, you get back to your clients within 24 hours. And I was like, most time within 24 minutes, like, you know, <laughs> even, even if it's, even if it's just, Hey, I don't know the answer. Hey, let me get somebody I'll on get that back for you. to you or yeah, I'm busy, just, but I'll, I've got time later. Like, yeah, exactly. Just, just the actual response back because it's just such a respect thing. And I have to say again, your attitude and your business acumen towards doing that for your clients is impeccable. It is so good. And it's such an honor and a privilege to work with your team 
because of your work ethic and because of what an amazing attitude and how everybody's always trying so hard to, as you said earlier, fill those gaps, like innovate. What's next? What do we need to do differently? How do we continue to stay on top? And you just do an amazing job with that. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Hala, tell me this. Um, Somebody is 25 to 30 years old, and they are going to go out and start a business. What do you tell them? And you're close to them, okay? This is not just somebody you're passing in the street. What do you say, don't ever do this. Make sure you do this. So what I would say is don't ever just start a business without actually knowing if there's demand for your services and actually knowing if what you do is worth money. So the way that the reason why I started Yap Media is because I'd always get asked the same question. Who does your marketing? They wouldn't ask me, where'd you buy your clothes? They didn't ask me, you know, how do you do your even podcast? Everybody was asking me, who does your videos? Who does your marketing? Who does your images? The people came on my show, random people on LinkedIn. And I always would be like, you know, uh, it's my volunteer team. Nothing to see here, nothing to offer. Then one day it clicked and I was like, we could just start a business and and start offering these marketing services. And I already have 20 people who have already asked me that I can go try to sell this to. And I started small and I started it as a side hustle while I was working at Disney. And I was like, all right, Heather Monahan, I'll do your videos. Then we did a great job. She's like, take over my whole LinkedIn. Okay, we did a great job. Take over my Instagram, take over my podcast, right? So started laying laying it on. Then we started actually getting like, I was proactively getting clients, uh, many of which were just guests who were on my show who were inquire. I never, ever solicited my services like for a really long time. It was just word of mouth. And because I was trying to start small because I was like, I'm I'm still working full time. I can't take on too many things. Right. So it would just be word of mouth or people just asking me and like being like, well, I think you do Heather stuff. So are you offering this? And so it's, it's kind of like knowing what you're good at and knowing that there's demand there. And the way that you do that is to make sure you get a few sales before you have a website, before you have a logo, before you spend more than $500 on your idea. Make sure that somebody actually wants to pay for it and wants your services because you might be really good at pottery, but nobody wants to buy pottery. Right. They'd rather go to, you know, a, a real store and buy that. So so tell me this. Tell the listeners how they start. So give them two or three things to vet that their actual business is viable. So first of all, make sure that you can get three paying customers, right? Before literally go in your DMs, go on your social media networks. Don't do any ads. Don't do any websites, any logos, just with your immediate network. See if three people will buy your offering. See if they push back on the price. Offer varying prices. Offer one, the first person, one price, the second person, a higher price, the third. See where, what you can get away with right? So you can start to understand how to price your stuff. We call that guerrilla marketing. <laughs> <laughs> then then start to see, like, as you, you work on this client stuff, start to get their feedback. Really listen to your clients. This is you developing your offer, right? As you get this, let them know you just started. This is beta. You're getting a reduced price. Give me feedback. Part of this reason why I'm giving you so cheaply is that I want your feedback so that I can design this offer. Once you get the, like what people really want, you get a price range that they're comfortable with. You know that there's some demand. Then you can start to invest in your idea a little bit more, but don't jump out the window and quit your job. Do this on the side. You can start a side hustle from 10 to 20 hours a week. And if you map out your time, you will find 
hours. If you spend two hours a day watching TV and you convert that into productive time to work on your side hustle, that's so much time. Yeah. Yeah. I just actually did that with my team. That's such a valuable, valuable lesson on scrolling or on, you know, just talking a little bit too long about maybe something that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And so I feel like I built this whole business at night, in the morning, on the train, on the weekends, literally. That's incredible. You know what I mean? And and it's like, I only became an, a full-time entrepreneur in February. So it's so short. You know what I mean? I've built this all very quickly. And I did it at night, in the morning, on the train, on the weekends. And then once it got to a point when I could quit my job, I quit my job and I put full focus on it because it, it needed that. But you can build things to a really big point. I had 35 team members before I quit my full-time job. And so you can build things up with 20 hours a week, like bigger than you think. And I think people just really underestimate how much time they really have. And they fail to realize that everybody has the same 24 hours. Everybody has the same 168 hours in a week. Stop thinking about 24 hours. Think about the 168 hours that you have in the week and where you can find that time because a lot of time is wasted. And I know that it's harder with children and things like that. But if you don't have children, you have time. You, you absolutely. And you know what? I mean, I have, I have four. Okay. So like, and I have time. If you want to be impactful and you want to be inspiring and you want to make a difference, figure out what your intentions are. Figure out what your motivation is. If you want to do something, there is always, always time barring, you know, a significant sickness or a significant, you know, illness or those type of things where you have a little bit of a time gap because you're not able to do it. There is always time, Hala. There's always time. I'll give you guys one example of like how, what you can do with 45 minutes a day, or let's say an hour and a half a day. So I'm one of the biggest influencers on LinkedIn. I literally grew my following on my commute on the train. Every morning, I would write my first po my post of the day. Every night on the way home on my commute, I would respond to my comments and my DMs. I literally did that for a year and I blew up on LinkedIn just using my train commute. And I just made it a thing. This is my only job on the commute is to think of a post, write it, post it, while the train was stopping and I got service, I would write it when I didn't have service. Then the train would stop and have service, push, like go, you know what I mean? And I did that every single day for a year. And I went from like a thousand followers to 60,000. I leveraged that to blow up my podcast, to blow up my business. And it was all on the commute. It's like, you need to realize like you have more time than you think. It's what are you doing with that time? Exactly. But, but again, going back to it's connection. You were listening to people, you were writing thoughtful posts, you were consistently doing it and you were communicating every single day. That's awesome. I love that. So we're running out of time. I just have a couple more questions for you. And I know that you're probably not going to answer me, but I'm still going to ask who is the worst guest you've ever had? <sighs> I had a really bad guest and we didn't air it. I'm not going to say her name, but she was this like celebrity. And my team thought that they were doing something good by booking a celebrity. But my show is really about actionable advice, improving actionable advice, improving people's lives. And it was this celebrity girl that I didn't have anything to talk about. Her dog came into the interview, started barking the whole time. It was just like such bad audio quality. Like I literally got off and it was like, this was the worst interview I've ever had. It was the worst conversation. We had nothing to talk about. And then as, and then she was literally like holding her dog and petting her dog and talking to me at the same time while he was huffing and puffing on the Ew. mic. And I was like, yeah, we can't play this. <laughs> You're like, oh, we're not doing this. Moving right along. <laughs> What's the best guest that you've ever had? 
I would say my favorite episode is with Robert Greene, number 43, number 44. And he wrote the laws of human nature and the 48th laws of power and the 50th laws of power. Huge human behavior experts, my favorite topic to talk about on my show. And he took two hours with me. This is a huge guess. And we were only supposed to go for an hour, but he was enjoying the conversation. And so I put out two episodes. It's one of my first episodes that went viral. I had maybe grew like 20,000 subscribers just from that one episode. People loved it and were sharing it everywhere. And it was going viral on SoundCloud and Spotify. And so that was a huge, that was like one of my biggest breaks. That was one of my first biggest breaks is, is getting him on the show and him staying for so long and people just loving that content. So a lot of people got hooked on my stuff. And that was a big, like, you know, I had a big jump in the beginning. And then that was like one thing I think that put me over the edge. That's incredible. Last question. Where do you see yourself and Yap in five years? I'm like the worst when it comes to like projecting my life in the future. I don't know why I'm so like, what is happening now? Like, you know, <laughs> so it's really, it's really hard for me to project my life in the future because even like, if you had asked me last year, would you have a company with 63 employees and 15 amazing clients? I'd be like, what are you talking about? Right. So I think things can change really fast, but writing a book, I think I probably should write a book. I think I should probably launch a course right? I think that I'll be doing a lot more paid speaking events. I think I'll be doing a lot more traveling uh, in general, whether it's seeing my clients or whether it's doing speaking gigs, maybe something on TV, maybe some sort of thing on TV. I think having a way like this needs to go. I need a way doper studio. So like having a dope studio, office space, headquarters for Yap Media, and, um, oh, I'm starting a podcast network. So that's going to be huge. <laughs> Maybe we'll get signed to Spotify oh, oh, or so. Oh, <laughs> oh and by oh, the way. Oh, that. <laughs> and by the way, it's already happening. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. How would people find you if they want to know more? And thank you. You guys can uh, search for Young and Profiting on your favorite platform. So Apple, Spotify, CastBox, Podbean, wherever you guys listen to the show. You could go to youngandprofiting.com. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name. It's Hala Taha. And Stephanie, I just have to say, you're awesome. This interview was literally one of the, I'm not just saying this because you're my client. This interview was literally one of the most unique, best conversations I've ever had. And we're going to replay it on Young and Profiting Podcast because it was so good. So thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. That means so much coming from you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com. 